Hello, I'm Raj Mehta, and welcome to another episode of Discussing APM with Richard Lehman. Hi, I'm uh, Richard, and uh, today we're talking about a subject that I've become somewhat associated with, but I find very difficult to talk about, and that's shared decision-making. Uh, I find it difficult to talk about because um, it strikes me that um, there are two extremes to shared decision-making. One is very simple, making it sound very simple, uh, doing it very simply, and at the other extreme, uh, as a complex human interaction, which can go on for years, and which is very, very hard to map and even more hard to teach or to measure. And teaching and measurement are things that we associate with science and medicine, quite rightly, and I haven't worked out the best way to do these things, despite having given it a lot of attention for about, formally for about 12 years, um, and informally before that as a practicing GP for about 30 years. So I'm hoping that Raj will prod me a little bit and also enlighten me as to what he thinks the main issues are uh, in real life practice when we try to share decisions with patients. Wow, Richard, that's a long time that you've been struggling and challenging and thinking about this topic. It's wonderful that we get to chat about this and borrow from your experience and your expertise. Um, I think a good place to start is perhaps the context of how shared decision-making occurs. Not everyone may be familiar with the process of how physicians and patients interact and the importance of even coming up with this term of shared decision-making in the context of making decisions, informed consent, and that balance between patient autonomy and physician-driven decision-making. Yeah, that's... Um going to drive me along a, a historical path again and uh, wonderful <laughs> <I> love history <laughs> i'm trying to work out when it all began and uh, of course uh, physicians and patients have tried to share decisions with each other for ages um and um uh, the the famous essayist the man who invented the word essay uh, was montaigne in the 16th century and he wrote some wonderful reflections on life which should be mandatory reading for uh, everyone who wants to interact with human beings because he tells it like it is and, uh, he says that uh, <clears throat> don't take any notice of what doctors say because um you can always get a doctor to agree with you um, and so you're making the decision as to what you're going to do and all you have to do is pay fees to these doctors who are going <laughs> to agree with you if you find the right one and um, this cynical view of what it's all about uh, has prevailed and does prevail in some societies to this day um, because the uh, interactions between doctors and patients are by no means equal. And there's always a social context and there's always a power imbalance when we enter on these um, attempts to be uh, equals in our decision-making capacity. And to the patient, of course, brings their experience, understanding and description of their symptoms. And we can either choose to uh, go along with that and investigate it further and come up alongside the patient or we can 
really act from a pre-prepared agenda of our own as to what possibilities we're going to consider and what treatments we're going to offer. And I think we need to be very aware of this, not in a cynical way, but as a fact of life. Um, in fact, shared decision-making is a fact of life. Life appears to share decisions from its very primitive forms of fungi seem to share decisions about where they're going to send out mycelium to investigate where food sources are and if they don't find any then the mycelium shrivels up for some reason though we don't understand and it's the same with ants and you can say that also of pack animals and um, migrating birds and so forth that they all have the great advantage of not being conscious and why it's more easy to share decisions when consciousness isn't involved is a mystery to me because all that we concentrate on in shared decision making is sharing cognitive processes and logical decisions and knowledge and so on. They seem to do all that without actually having to bother with it reaching the conscious level at all. And uh, maybe we would be best if we were automata, as our politicians would like us to be, and simply go along with what's best uh, for them. Uh, and they say for society, but it's usually for them and their bank accounts. I'm speaking, of course, as an Englishman in 2022. And this may not apply to other societies and other times. Anyway, that's what a, what a, that'll be my that's a, that's a wonderful philosophical and historical segue. Yes, it's you know decision making is is just in general complex. It's the nature of power. It touches on the notion of free will, um, of cognition, consciousness, and to degree every decision involves influences, uh, and decisions exist in systems, and there are power balances. And I think. It's appropriate in the medical context to begin with the recognition that there's patients as physicians and there's a power imbalance between them. And then recognizing that, you know, there's physicians have the choice about what they're going to believe, how they're going to engage, how they're going to engage with the patients and the patients themselves, whether you're very cynical or you're seeking different types of physicians or you're engaging with physicians, even if they're telling you things you don't want to hear. There's a lot of elements that touch on that and exploring that dynamic is the core of appreciating the shared decision-making process. I think so, without getting too philosophical or sociological about it, you know, it's, there is an anthropology here and we, we can't deny it. But on the other hand, um, a lot of the well-meaning effort in shared decision-making is an attempt to overcome this process and to what extent we as rational western um, logical free will believers and so on as much as we do believe in free will uh, we have to respect autonomy and to try and work along these principles and in the process i think we have a kind of idealistic view that we can improve society by being examples of um, a trust-based system where knowledge is exchanged and results in human betterment. And I entirely believe in that ideal. Um, what I also believe in is that it's very difficult and that it's going to be a struggle in each generation and that each society has to work out its own way of doing this. There isn't a blueprint or a simple map 
that everybody can follow and get to the right conclusion. It involves human beings who need the right motivation. It needs a knowledge generation machine, which is far from perfect. And it needs people who can spare the time and have the patience and the communication skills to enact it in real life. And that's never going to be perfect. We can only just struggle to make it a little less imperfect than it currently is. I think discussing ideals is a great point here because in the context of the relationship between patients and physicians, there is decisions that need to be made, but we have principles and goals that try to guide this. It's, a, it's one driven largely by an ethical sense, you know, thinking of duty and that goes back to Kant, if you will, but, but ethical principles that drive how shared decision-making should occur as an ideal. Um, maybe, can you touch on that a bit? Yes, I, I, I haven't got the, um, the, the map of med- biomedical ethics in front of me that I can refer to. <laughs> well, I, 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 I saw, you know, I think we say the four cornerstone principles are, you know, beneficence, autonomy, non-maleficence, and then justice. And it, yes, and that's, uh, and I forget, there were a couple of people who, who drew, drew up that list in the middle <laughs> of the 1960s who were basing it uh, to some extent on um, post-war medical ethics, which of course was very much conditioned by the horrific experimentation done by the Nazis. We say by the Nazis, of course, the same thing was actually going on in, in the USA and the UK and Scandinavia and other places, because there was uh, um, a, a widespread feeling amongst medical men, as they were known in those days, because it was an almost entirely male profession, um, that somehow uh, becoming a, um, a doctor, a physician, an experimental researcher gave you a kind of superior moral authority, particularly over people who were yes. regarded as subclasses of humanity um, in the case of the Nazis, Jews, but also in the case of Americans, black prisoners, of course, with the syphilis mm-hmm. experiments. And in the case of Scandinavians, uh, there was a, a sort of almost eugenic view of, of people with um, reduced mental capacity. And so um, gradually as a result of um, Helsinki declarations and the Nuremberg trials, the principle of autonomy uh, of medical uh, procedures having to be done on the basis of informed consent became very general. To be honest, it had been around for a lot longer than that. And, it, it even was applied by a Jewish prisoner in, a, in a, um, a Nazi concentration camp who was, when the doctor attempted to perform a, a, a forced sterilization on her, she refused to lie down and he actually stopped doing it. So um, it, even in the most horrific circumstances, some kind of assertion of autonomy can and should be made, uh, but of course it shouldn't need to be um, uh, the 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 last resort of a patient it should be the first principle some people would would disagree with that and there are special circumstances of course you've got the abortion debate in in the us now and um, 
uh, one of our members of parliament stood up today and said that autonomy doesn't apply entirely to the human, to the female body. <laughs> he said that <laughs> in the UK parliament. So these things have to be asserted. And um, anyway, so let's, that's, that's the principle of autonomy um, that people have the right to decide what is done with their own bodies. Um, justice um, can be interpreted as an aspect of that. Also, it's used in this context to describe the just allocation of um, medical care across society. And, and that's a very debatable point. And you know, whether we actually share decisions on medical priorities is a moot point, and we could spend the rest of this discussion on that. Beneficence is um, a description of a moral value held by individuals in regard to actions towards others. And so it's slightly different uh, because it involves a form of, of moral value within the person, um, a moral attitude, as does non-maleficence, which means not hating the person, uh, not wishing them ill. Um, now, I think this is a rather dated and unsatisfactory limited range of options and it's been discussed endlessly. But let's, let's move beyond that perhaps and um, maybe we can talk more in terms of practical wisdom um, and the necessary qualities that we as health professionals need to develop within ourselves in order to carry out shared decision-making um, in a genuine and um, compassionate way. Yes, it's, it's excellent because we do have the ideals and it's important to know the history and the concept of that. So there's value there. But then practically, as physicians, I myself, when there are patients in front of me, what are my goals? What am I trying to do practically? And if I was going to take my example simply when there are patients in front of me, it's it's trying to strike that balance of understanding what their moral values are, what their goals are, making sure they understand what the dishes, options are in front of them, what the potential outcomes are as best I can explain it, and then trying to balance how much of this decision am I trying to inform them so they can make themselves, how much of it am I trying to explain them in a way that sometimes the balance of power comes a little bit more toward me, but that may be appropriate because this may not be decisions that um, I want the patient to make thoughtlessly, you know, or in due course and so on. Yeah. And um, in that, uh, there's the, the, the power imbalance and the knowledge imbalance. Um, uh, we were talking about informed consent, uh, you know, informed consent for surgery has been around uh, for much longer than those four principles. And um, you could argue that it was probably even present in, in um, ancient Egypt, but um, the, the, the came to the fore as most of these things did, as you said, Kant and the enlightenment and the, the thought that was given to human rights and human values. Um, and People have been asked to sign forms of consent for surgery uh, for medical legal purposes or have witnesses present to the fact that they um, 
consented to have this hazardous procedure done on them for centuries. And um, for most yeah. of those procedures, that consent was for, uh, for, for things that would actually do harm. harm. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's still sometimes the case, um, even today. Um, people are persuaded by their medical attendants, surgeons um, in particular uh, have to obtain consent before the, the patient's anesthetized, and then um, they do often, um, <clears throat> they've got a carte blanche to proceed to do whatever they wish. And that's not always the best thing for the patient. And yet we cede that power to them uh, on the understanding that they are non-maleficent and, um, and beneficent and they are going to do the best for us according to the limits of their knowledge. Yes. And this is where we intersect with um, evidence-based medicine, of course. What are the limits of knowledge? Um, are they... Uh, are we making them clear to the patient? Are they clear to us? Uh, are they clear in the consent documents that we use? And um, those, so those are sort of elementary questions in a way for, for shared decision-making. They are essential. It, it brings two points to my mind. One is that to some degree an informed consent where you sign a paper, you say yes or no to a surgery is a very binary act. So it allows yes. us to make a clear distinction, but a lot of decisions is actually a continuum, right? Where it's not always a clear yes or clear no in the moment, a little bit towards one way, a little bit towards other. And that continuum allows a lot of space for how that process of decision-making can occur. And I think that's kind of where a lot of shared decision-making really lives, um, even to the point where you make that decision afterwards. And it's an interesting um, overlap between the physician and the patient. There's a balance, an imbalance of power knowledge, but there's also a difference of what the patient may value versus what I as a physician may value. There's a difference in the limits of knowledge. Like I know certain things, there's enough evidence to say this works or doesn't work. The patient may not know, but then there are also things that I don't know. There's uncertainty in my knowledge base. And then there's attempting to find that meeting between does my knowledge agree with the patient's knowledge? Do we share understanding of basic facts? do we understand the values? Am I understanding the patient's values? And, you know, should I be allowed to make the patient understand my values? Am I, am I in a position to say, well, I know you want to do this, but here are my values, or is it appropriate not to do those things? Um, is there a conflict resolution? The patient espouses one values, but I think their actions are implying a different value sense. And how do you resolve those challenging differences? Oh, there's so much there to unwind. Well, you, you've produced a list of, I don't know, 15 or 20 subjects. Which, uh, <laughs> no pressure, Richard. Exactly the reason why I open by saying that um, I find this very difficult because the simple model of um, going in for uh, an operation and signing a consent form um, is perhaps shared decision-making at its most basic and people have worked with the basic because the, the complex is so difficult and um, very typically the shared decision making uh, tools are binary and um, simple um, to make them easy to use and um, it, it, they often concentrate on one-off decisions um, irrevocable ones in the case of most forms of surgery 
um, you, you're left without a bit of yourself or with a different bit of yourself, uh, shape, a differently shaped bit of yourself after the form of surgery. You might have a, an implant that you didn't have before or, or whatever. Um, and um, in order to reverse that, you would have to go through a whole lot more surgery. So, um, and, and certain medical decisions, of course, are the, the same. And of course, some, some situations um, preclude shared decision-making because of their emergency character. And even more, um, decisions are clear and necessary and um, uh, hardly a, a matter of debate. So all that we can pack into the simple end of the spectrum. But you, as a as a primary care physician, know <laughs> that that is that's that's the easy stuff. That's things that go on in hospitals. Those guys can be simple-minded. We have to be complicated. Uh, because people are complicated and we have to stick with them we have to build trust we have to we haven't got a single technical skill that we are offering them we're offering them a contract of um, engagement and um, true beneficence that in that we want them to know that we have their best interests of mind and that those interests are not going to conflict with theirs because we go, if there is any conflict, then we want them to say so. We want them to open up. Yes. And that is shared decision making. Now, to describe that process, to measure it and to teach it are immensely complicated tasks. <laughs> they are immensely tasks. And, and, and that's why I refuse to call my very brief professorship uh, shared decision making. I called it the shared understanding of medicine. Mm -hmm. And you've already alluded to that. I don't know whether you that was in conscious uh, acknowledgement of, <laughs> of the way that I've used it, or whether it just came out spontaneously. And I have never tried to um, proselytize for the term shared understanding of medicine. I have wanted it to come out of people's own mouths. If it was the right term, people would use it. If it wasn't, they would come up with a better term. I've never banged a drum or written a book or even properly an article on, on what shared understanding of medicine actually is because it is too complicated and it is a living thing. And it is in a way the whole purpose of us being the kind of doctors that we are. I'm talking about you and me now. Um, so yeah, all those things you mentioned, plus a few I more. I, so I love select, select one or two and we can talk. There's like, <laughs> I, I love the term shared understanding of medicine. And the reason I love it is because the shared decision-making is an important concept and term, but it's so complex and decision-making is so complex and there's so many layers to it. But before you make the decision, before you even reach that point, one of the key aspects of this is having the understanding between that patient and the physician, between myself and the patient in front of me, being able to do my best to convey that they can trust me and to, to validate that trust and then to find shared understanding of common facts, of common values, to be able to listen and repeat back to the patient my comprehension of theirs and for me to be honest with them if I have my own because one of the biggest challenges sometimes with shared understanding is just, you know, philosophical conflicts of interest. The patient may express values that I personally disagree with and then that's tough and I have to recognize that sometimes and 
I also can't be dishonest about it. And sometimes just transparency, but also promising to not let that judge my bias as much as possible and to respect theirs is also so important. Um, so I am fully in favor of the term shared understanding. I, I, I think it's great. Actually, Ron, Ron Epstein um, uh, from Rochester NY has, has written very well about this. And um, so, and, and that's from the context of someone in primary care and who's interested in end of life care as well. And um, he was describing how uh, an African-American patient had an entirely different view from himself about what the issues really were. And yet they could talk with complete freedom because they trusted each other. Yes. And each could take from the other what they needed without any form of power imbalance or constraint. Now that's the lovely thing if you can achieve it, but how often is it achievable? And so we, we've got this conflict between what is in effect um, a kind of fellowship between human minds and, and bodies um, and uh, legal requirements to give sufficient information for people to make informed choices. Indeed. And, 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 mm. and, I said, and it speaks also to just the diversity of man. I mean, we are all different people and it underlies the importance of having different types of doctors, backgrounds, and faith understanding, because we all connect differently, you know, and we need yeah, to serve totally. the communities in yeah. front of us. I mean, I've, I've been trying to think this through from the point of view of China. Well, China's 1.4 billion people, and so, you know, it's quite an important country. <laughs> but it really, it's, although it's a single civilization, it's, it's any number of different peoples and cultures. Um, and uh, and degrees of development. And so that's really conditioned my thinking in the last five years. Um, but I think that where, where I came in on this, believe it or not, was my belief in shared decision-making as a vector of knowledge and primarily a vector of knowledge for doctors. So it was not an enlightened feeling of, of, of duty towards patients up front, although it was to some extent informed by that. I, I'm not I'm maleficent. I, I did want patients to understand what treatments they were getting. But I thought that in the process of doctors being forced to be accountable to patients, they would be forced to become better informed themselves and that that would in turn force researchers to pick patient relevant topics so that the outcomes that patients most want could be discussed in an informed way by the doctors treating them. Now, it may seem a very roundabout way <laughs> of getting knowledge and evidence-based medicine into practice, but I think it, 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 it is actually the case. Uh, we can't do proper shared decision making because we don't have a proper evidence base for a lot of stuff. And this was uh, um, illustrated wonderfully today by a paper that I'd actually reviewed earlier and so I read with care. It's from a Scottish group and it was showing that um, the outcome 
the primary outcomes of trials in breast cancer and uh, advanced kidney disease, the primary outcomes only uh, coincided with the primary concerns of patients in 23% of cases, that's less than a quarter of trials actually gave patients the things that they, the answers that they were most interested in. And this applies across the board and until recently, uh, trials have been conducted with the primary endpoints that um, researchers have been most interested in and have talked PPI, that's patient and public participation groups into accepting as the right ones. It has however been done the other way around for nearly 10 years now in, in that patients have decided on their own um, research questions, but not their own primary outcomes or secondary outcomes. And I think with in advances in research methodology, the distinction between primary outcomes, i.e. those that trials are statistically power to measure and secondary outcomes, i.e. those which uh, emerge from the data um, is going to get a little bit blurred and that's going to require statisticians who again need to be beneficent and to be aware of what patients really are interested in. And we clinicians are going to have to become even more sophisticated in our appreciation of the evidence. And to do that uh, in turn requires a lot of um, help from evidence synthesis and um, from electronic tools to help both us and patients um, sing from the same sheet. I uh, absolutely 100% agree. And it, it touches on my thoughts on how we overlap EBM and our shared understanding of medicine, because the core of being able to do this, and you've made these points, the, the two core elements of doing the shared decision and making shared understanding is one, us as physicians having an appreciation for the limits of our knowledge, and two, appreciating whether we share the same value or the same outcomes as the patients in front of us. And so one, the limits of our knowledge are driven by our awareness of the existing literature, the EBM that is there, but also the people who are creating funding, doing the trials, if they're not doing trials, they're not studying things that are helpful to us as physicians and patients, they're missing the mark and, and studying two low yield items or too slowly. And the second, this is also integral to this, is that we have to be sure that the outcomes we're measuring are those outcomes that patients also care about. And if we only focus on specific things that are very physician-oriented or oriented toward standards of bureaucracy and how studies are funded and things of that nature, we miss out on key bits of information that are that are integral to the shared decision-making process. And so it all circles back. You know, you were sitting there with the patient in front of you, or I'm sitting with the patient in front of me, and it trickles all the way back to people who are funding, creating, designing trials and deciding what they're choosing to study and how they're choosing to study it. Uh, and if we do the right things, we have better opportunities for a shared decision-making. And if we don't, we miss out on it. As an educator, this happens a lot because I'll be teaching medical students and residents and I will frequently be trying to remind the resident physicians or registrars as you have in the UK that you know, here's a situation where there's uncertainty about the best thing to do. And it's a great opportunity to ask the patients what their goals are and remind them of opportunities to share decision-making and reminding them of this power imbalance. And it always draws every time I have discussions with them about 
areas of uncertainty, areas where we have the limits of our knowledge. And I'm like, this is actually great because we don't know, but that means we need to ask the patient what they want, right? And then this is a, this is a moment for us to do more of this. Well, that's very sweet moment for me actually because that's exactly of course what i've been trying to say in various ways for uh, a long time but i'm not the only one and i think it's a realization that's come over the profession um thanks to the work of, of some very notable advocates in, including victor montori and harlan crumholz and um, others um so i think that's a, a great note on which to end because uh, we could go on forever on this. Indeed, we um, could. And uh, yeah, I think we need to take an optimistic and idealistic view of the future, however grim things may appear to be at the moment. These are things that are achievable and that I think it's only going to require a few people with the right motivation to get this going. And I can see these people already gathering in various places around the world. And um, let's try and uh, become part of them to encourage them. Wonderful, thank you, Richard. Okay, bye-bye.